welcome to another episode of Trinity College Dublin Talks. Uh, today's guest is Jonathan Coleman, who's been a lecturer in physics at Trinity College Dublin since 2001. He graduated with uh, first class honours and a gold medal, which is kind of quite unusual in physics, in 1995 and then did a PhD here in 1999. Dr. Coleman's main area of interest is an area that's become very, um, I suppose, popular, almost trendy, you could say, graphene which is a kind of incredibly thin substance about which all kinds of promises have been made. And we'll come to those in a moment. But first of all, welcome, Jonathan. Thank you very much. Jonathan, can we just talk about how you become a physicist? Because I imagine there'll be people out there who uh, might be thinking of becoming a physicist or some, you know, thinking of some similar area and wondering, do they have the calling? Because it's not something you can kind of stumble into randomly. You've got to be pretty good at this kind of thing to become a physicist. So when, when did you begin to know that, that this might be what you wanted to do? Well, I did physics for the Leaving Cert and I really enjoyed it. And, and part of the reason I really enjoyed it was that uh, you could do well in physics without having to learn things off by heart because it was about understanding things. And so it was great because I was terribly lazy. So, you know, that really suited me down to, down to the ground. And interestingly, I was talking to a, a, a school kid recently who when I said this to them they looked at me as if I was absolutely insane mm -hmm. and the viewpoint now seems to be whether it's the way it's taught or, 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 or what I don't know that you learn physics which is really that's not how it is you understand physics and once you understand it it's very very simple so for me it was something that was simple and that was very attractive when I was 17 and wanted to do other things besides sitting behind the books all day. But what about, say, chemistry? Were you good at chemistry as well? Well, Maths. I was. Mm. I, I did like chemistry. Now, I, I had an unusual situation in the, the school that I was at. There was a choice going into leaving cert, cert year between you could do history or chemistry, but you couldn't do both. And my, my dad was a great history buff, and he was one of these guys who said, you know, you, if, if you don't understand the mistakes of the past, you're destined to, to, to relive them. So I thought, well, you know, I really should do history. And I ended up dropping chemistry and uh, now I'm the professor of chemical physics having not done chemistry in school so that's a little bit unusual. That's, that's, uh, that's a quite a missed opportunity although you've <laughs> clearly made up, made up for it since. But, uh, so uh, did you put down physics first on your CAO form on the form that decides what you do in university? Yes yeah. I mean I, in fact I think I only put down physics. Uh, so I, you knew at 18? Well I knew I yeah. liked it yeah. and probably the best advice I ever got was to do something that you like because if you don't like it you won't stick at it and that would that's absolutely true. So I, I liked it and I did it and I never regretted it. Now I didn't know that I would do it as a career. I didn't know back in those days when I was in school, that you could become a physicist. Uh, I just did it because I liked it. And then you, you went through Trinity, you did your four years, and then I suppose there's a crunch point <coughs> in, a, in a student's life. Do they go on and do a PhD, or do they go out into some other area of work? We won't call it the real world. The real world is also in Trinity. But where, how, did you, how did you make that decision to do a PhD? Well, I was having far too much fun to leave Trinity. I, I'd had four years worth of fun, so I thought another four years of fun would be, uh, would be quite a ticket. And uh, I, I did a PhD here in, in Trinity, and it was great. I mean, I, I had the best of every possible world. I, I mean, it was great for social life, but also it was a good research environment, even though back in those days the sort of 
the funding in Ireland wasn't as it should be for research, but still it was just starting, it was just starting to take off. And so that was a great time because this there was... This is the mid-90s, is it just... Well, this was the, the late sort of 90s. mid to late yeah. 90s. Yeah. So, you know, SFI hadn't started yet, but there was a lot of European money. And maybe there was a sense, certainly towards the end of that decade and maybe the start of the noughties, that something was about to happen and that maybe the research situation in Ireland would improve and improve beyond our, our imagination. And it, of course it did. So it was, it was a great time. But looking back, it was really a time when physics was done through blue tack and sellotape and sealing wax. Now, you know, that's, you can do physics that way, but it's easier to do it as we do nowadays with resources and equipment and money. So for those of, those of our listeners who don't know, this is really a time, isn't it, when Fianna Fáil and Mary Harney kind of made a strategic bet, in a way, to, to back science and put quite a lot of money into it. And that, that, that strategic bet, interestingly, stayed even during the recession, even when things got bad, quite a lot of money was left untouched in the, in the scientific area. But what did, what, did you, uh, what did you do your PhD in? Um, I did my PhD <coughs> in, it, it, was, it was in nanoscience, and, mm. and those were really the days before nanoscience was, was this well-known sort of sexy field that it is today. That was really at the start, and people didn't know very much about it. So I was quite lucky. I did my PhD about a material called carbon nanotubes, which are these sort of little rods of carbon that are super strong and super conductive and have all these wonderful properties. But that was really in the early days of nanoscience. So it was all very new and you could do lots and lots of stuff and it was easy to find things that were novel. But of course, one of the things that I think we'll talk about later is that nanoscience leads itself very nicely into applications. And of course, that's great because if you want to be funded, uh, it helps that you're doing something that will eventually maybe have an effect on the economy. So tell us a little bit, now we get to the slightly difficult bit, and I should say as I look around um, Jonathan's desk, I see all kinds of rather, rather distracting equations lying everywhere. It is, in a way, the kind of office you'd expect a professor to have. But tell us about uh, these tubes, because they're not ordinary tubes. They're, first of all, they're tiny, and secondly, they're, they're very strong, aren't they? I mean, yes. how do they work? Well, I mean, nano comes from the Greek word for dwarf, so anything with the word nano in it means something very, very small. And with carbon nanotubes, there are these little cil cylinders of carbon. And what's very small about them is their diameter. So they're about usually about one nanometer in diameter. And a nanometer is a millionth of a millimeter. So that's pretty small. But these things, these rods can be, they're very, very narrow, but they can be quite long. And in fact, people have made them centimeters long. So these are very, very long and very, very thin. They're also pretty much the strongest material known to man. So some things that you can do, what people were doing 20 years ago were taking these very strong little rods and putting them into plastics with the idea of improving the strength of plastics and making super strong plastics. So that sort of worked uh, and even is in some products now, but we decided recently to revisit that and try to reinforce the electrodes in batteries. And sort of a lot of people said to me, well, why would you want to do something like that? And as I look at my computer, there's, a, there's an email there just saying that this work has been accepted in, in uh, Nature Energy, which is the premier energy journal. And what people don't realize is that battery electrodes oftentimes fail because the electrodes crack. So when your laptop battery, you buy it and it lasts for eight hours and then a year later it lasts for four hours or, or less, oftentimes that's because the electrode is cracked. But if you put in nanotubes, 
or perhaps other strong materials, you can stop that cracking in. In fact, we were able to make battery electrodes that were well beyond the highest energy density battery, battery electrodes ever made and pretty stable. So that's an example of how nanomaterials, particularly nanotubes, can help in real life. So everyone has a phone with a battery in it. So we can use nano to make better batteries. And in fact, it's widely believed that batteries which are, are important both for phones and computers, but also for energy storage, say from wind farms or something, nano will enab enable the next big revolution in the improvements of batteries, for example, for cars and, and things like that. So nano is really everywhere uh, and it, it will affect every everyone. It just, they ha it hasn't quite come to the point where nano is in products you in, in Tesco yet. I mean, let, let, let's talk <coughs> about these products because like, your own research has been, <coughs> you've looked at how, I don't know, the lid of a milk bottle might tell you that the milk has gone off or that, that wine is at the right temperature to take a, something that we can all understand perhaps <laughs> relate to. Uh, you're talking about new kinds of battery or, or much more reliable batteries. What are, you can also use it, can't you, when you're doing MRI scans to kind of color the bodies so you can kind of see what's wrong with somebody. What are the other applications that it might be, might be used for? Well, for nanomaterials in general, we, we would be here for a very long time if we were to really talk about all the possible applications because it's literally the length of your arm. If you type into Google graphene, which is a, a very well-known nanomaterial nowadays, plus applications, you'll get uh, 10 million hits. There are just so many things, but you can break it down into a couple of classes of applications. Mm. So the first one, the way I would look at it is sort of as maybe a futurologist would look at it. So nanomaterials will first of all be used in applications where they replace existing materials to do an existing job, but to make the endpoint application better, faster, stronger, cheaper. So computers nowadays have the transistors in the computers that do the, the, the logic on which the computation is based are now nanoscale. That means that the, the sort of size of the piece of the transistor, the transistor that does the sort of work is less than 100 nanometers, 100 millionths of a millimeter, which is the classical definition of nanomaterials. And these transistors, the, the sort of workhorse behind your computer, became nano in the last 10 years. So that's an example of nano you know, coming into something that was already there and making it better or faster or cheaper. And we see this all around us. So I've just talked about batteries, making better batteries, mm. but batteries nonetheless. Um, milk bottles. So you, talk, you mentioned the milk bottles. This is talking about printed electronics where you can print electronic circuitry on everyday uh, objects to make them communi communicate with the internet. And the idea, for example, is that food in the fridge will communicate with the fridge to tell you when it's gone off. But again, electronic circuitry is something that has been around for years. All we're doing is making it printable. So nano will be in a lot of applications where it's just replacing stuff that we now have. But what's much more exciting is what comes after that. Mm. And that's when nano starts allowing applications that we have no idea of today. And I can't tell you what they will be. Do you have any sense of it, though? 
No, you know, because it kind honest, of it, it makes honestly, sense. It, I, I, that's the first thing when you have a big change, isn't it? You replicate what you know. But, yeah. But well, I, I really well <coughs> look. I can tell you one or two examples, mm. but the, the the really cool thing is that no, in, in ten to twenty years' time, there will be applications based on nanometers that we really have no idea now, and they will be societally changing. Now, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing is another question. But I'll give you one sense of it. So, we talk. People talk a lot about self-driving cars, and I think everyone agrees that self-driving cars are on the way. So I got a new car recently, it's probably the last new car I will ever buy. Because there will be either, they'll be electric and then they'll be self-driving and, and that's it. And then people won't own cars. So that's all very well. People, most people know about that. But what nobody thinks about, what nobody thinks about is that self-driving cars have to drive at night. And so you need night vision cameras. And the night vision cameras we have today are nowhere near the quality okay. for self-driving cars. Now, uh, I'm in a, a European program called the Graphene Flagship, which is looking to take graphene from early stage research to applications. And one of the groups, the group in Spain, has shown that you can take graphene and that you can make night vision cameras using graphene that are not only much cheaper than the ones we have today, but much, much better and certainly good enough for the cameras that will be needed in self-driving cars. So there's an example of, first of all, graphene doing something that no other material can do. And secondly, graphene fulfilling an application that really, while it was there, uh, night vision cameras, wasn't really important until the advent of self-driving cars comes along. Mm. So this is really something that allows the future in a form that we haven't really seen before to happen. And that's just one example. And nanomaterials will really fulfill a lot of applications like that and partly because nanomaterials are small so you can have a lot of them in a certain space and so do a lot of stuff but also because the properties of nanomaterials are different from the properties of bulk three-dimensional materials and so they can do different things. One, one of the things that struck me when I was <coughs> trying to get my head around nanomaterials because I still find it complicated is just how the, the, the cost is reduced. You know, that it, I, I read that um, 10 years ago, a centimeter of nanomaterial might cost $100 million, whereas now we're talking about the possibility of throwing <coughs> it away with the milk carton at the end of the day. It's a kind of a, uh, so it's gone from being something that must have been very difficult to research, just silly, simply from the kind of logistics point of view, from the cost point of view, to, to something that presumably isn't, uh, cost isn't such a factor, or, or am I getting it wrong? What I really want to understand is, that it was a very abstract thing and now it's, it's moving to a far less abstract form. Yeah. Well, well, there are two factors there. Mm. Uh, one is that uh, the cost for any material, whether it be nanomaterials or anything that is going from the lab into applications, the cost will always come down. And it's simply because people get better at making it or find new, cheaper ways to make it. Uh, that's a natural process that sort of has happened all through material science. But the second thing that's specific to nanomaterials is that nanomaterials are, by their very nature, small. So you use the example of whatever it is, $10 million per square centimeter of graphene, as it was when it first became commercialized. And that sounds you know, terribly expensive. But when you only need, I don't know, 100 nanometer by 100 nanometer area of graphene to make a transistor, the area is so small that you know, the price per square centimeter is largely irrelevant. 
And that's an important thing about nanomaterials because typically you use so little of them that cost is not a factor anymore. And there may be other areas such as toxicology and pollution where similar things, uh, uh, similar uh, scalings hold where you're just using so little of this material that you know, it's not harmful, it's not expensive, it, recycling isn't a problem, etc. etc. So those are other benefits of, of nano. So I, I did a project with, um, with uh, Hewlett Packard some years ago on transparent conductors. And so every screen has a conductor on the front that allows electricity to flow in, but it has to be transparent to let the light out. So your mm. phone screen, TV, computer screen, they all need transparent conductors, and the materials that are usually used are running out. So this project was to make new transparent conductors. So we found a way of making them from nanowires of silver, and we had great results. But we had to convince the company that made these wires that it was worth scaling up their process to make enough for industry. And so we convinced the company that, you know, if, you, if, we, if we get this into a product, Hewlett Packard would be buying so much silver nanowires from you that, you know, you'd be set for, for life. So we got a conference call between the company making the silver nanowires and Hewlett Packard. And after a lot of sort of introduction, we eventually came to the meet of the, the thing where Hewlett Packard were asked how much of these silver nanowires they would buy over a 10 year period. And of course we were expecting tons. And they came out, there was a few calculations being done. You could hear the pencil scratching and the answer came back about half a kilo, which is nothing. And so, you know, the company said, well, we can't change our manufacturing process for half a kilo. But the reason it was such a small amount was that for nanomaterials to do a given job, you need very, very, very little. So half a kilo was going to be enough for 10 years worth of production. Of so all the screens. Of all the screens that they were going to make. Yeah. So that really shows you the power of nano. It takes a very, very small amount of these materials to do a given job. And that, certainly for economic reasons, that's a good thing. John, the people often wonder about why should the public fund research, as they do by funding universities, by funding in other countries, dedicated research units. And in a sense, your, your answer there has kind of covered that, that, that kind of issue. You talk about working with Hewlett Packard, but you also talk about collaborating with other universities to, to find my vision. How do you think uh, inventions like this, because this is what we need in the West if we're to, to prosper, to, to continue developing these kind of discoveries. How, how do you think that we can create an environment here in Ireland and, and, and across the EU that, that really underpins new, new kinds of discovery? Well, I think first of all, we, we have to be realistic about the, how the process of from discovery to product in Aldi actually works. And there's something called a technology readiness, letter, readiness level ladder, which is basically a set of stages from one to nine that tells you where you are in the development chain. So one is something has been discovered in the lab that may be useful somewhere, someday. And nine is ready to go into a product. And to get, you don't go from one to nine in one jump. You go one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. And typically, a lot of companies might work at seven, eight, nine. Other companies will work four, five, six, and then ship their products to a company that brings them from, from seven to nine, etc. Very few companies work at the one, two, three level. They rely on universities to do it. 
and the economic model over the last 70 years has been based on that where the basic research is done in universities the technology is transferred into companies it may then be transferred to other companies and eventually it becomes a product and that's how things work and companies typically nowadays can't justify the resources into doing the basic research required to do the very early stages of that and so it, it it's done in universities and that's how things work um, the other thing is that you don't have anything at the higher technology levels without starting somewhere so someone has to do that basic research and if it's not done in the universities well in 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 the west it will be done in the universities in china for sure because those guys understand this so i mean so is there a lot of basic research going on in China at the moment? They do, they do everything. Yeah. I think they've got a much better understanding of how the whole process works in China. I mean, the Chinese government, you know, they, they, they don't really care about basic research per se, but they do care about technology and industry, and they understand that you can't have that without the basic research. So they fund the basic research, and they understand the levels at which they have to fund the whole, whole chain. Now, in, in Europe... In particular, there has been a move over the last 10 years or so, and it's obviously linked to the, the recession, to not do basic research funding and only do applied research funding. And the problem with that is there is no applied research without the underpinning basic research. So this is the worry I think a lot of my colleagues um, have. Now, on the other hand, you know we shouldn't be too critical because... Um, you know, applied research in Ireland, we've been very successful at funding applied research. And science funding in Ireland remained constant over the course of the recession because the, uh, applied research was being funding and hence an argument could be made that this was useful. So I don't want to seem too critical, but I think it's about getting the balance right, the balance between basic and applied. It's very interesting that, that, that China is so good at this, isn't it? Because it... it, it turns on its head this idea that, that I think many people had in the past, and we're all beginning to realize we were wrong, that the Chinese only copy, that they don't, that they don't develop. But really what you're saying is in Europe we're in danger of falling into precisely that trap. If we don't, if we don't think harder about uh, how we can promote basic research. Yes, I, I think that's true. And I think it's a particular problem in Ireland because I think in Ireland people don't quite understand the value of basic research to the economy. So I was in Toulouse recently and uh, I visited Airbus. And so you know, Airbus uh, employs 70,000 people in the Toulouse area or certainly in that part of France. And you know, when you have something like that there, a very technology-focused enterprise that is a huge part of the economy, you can't but understand the importance. We don't really have anything like that. Of course, we have Intel, etc., but we don't have anything of the scale of Airbus or in, in, in America, Boeing or, or, or whatever. And so I think we've, in Ireland, we don't quite understand. I mean, I think if, if everyone in Ireland was telling their local MPs that, or local TDs that they must fund basic research, then basic research would be funded. Whereas in France, Germany, Britain, people do understand that feeds up to the government and then the government feel under pressure to do it. I think really it starts at the bottom here. And so the onus on people uh, like myself and the universities to go and talk to people and convince people of the value of what we're doing. Can I just, as a, as a last question, take you, take you back to, I suppose, where we began, which is 
how does one know that, that, that one, one should do science, uh, whether it's biology or chemistry or, or physics? I mean, is, is your answer because you find it easy or is it because you find it satisfying? Because when I talk to you, I, I, I get this feeling off you of, of kind of, not that you find it easy anymore because it's not easy at your level, uh, but you, you, you seem like a very satisfied man. Is, is, is that something that one needs to look out for? Or does that come later or am I reading it completely wrong? No, I, I, it's great fun. But mm. I mean, when I was in third year in school doing theorems in maths class, I found that great fun. My God, if my, ki if my kids hear this, they will make such fun of me. But <laughs> I, I find that stuff satisfying. I, I find the whole physics maths thing satisfying. So I find doing maths, you, you mentioned the squiggles of equations on the page. I find that fun. I, I find all of this very, very satisfying. And that's really the key. And someone recently that I did, that I was in with me in undergrad and postgrad and afterwards and then left science. And I remember asking them, why did you leave? And, and they said, well, you know, I realized one day that I wasn't thinking about science in the shower, on the Lewis, when I was cycling my bike, etc. And he said to me, as I know you do, and he's right. So I, I really enjoyed it so much that, you know, I am sort of obsessing about these things. I'll wake up in the middle of the night and go into my office and write yeah. some squiggles. And I think if you're really that sort of, if you really enjoy something that much, then I think no matter what it is, you know, you'll be good at it. But you have to enjoy it. Jonathan Coleman, thank you very much for talking to us today. Thank you.